Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the alternate current radio network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the second hour, and in this segment, we're going to be joined by a very special guest. Uh, we're going to talk about Oregon. We're going to continue that conversation of what we left off before the commercial break. Uh, we're going to take a look at some different aspects of it with our next guest. Uh, he is a organizational management uh, consultant and uh, with 12 years uh, in the financial industry in public and private sectors. Uh, he is also involved in an organization called Panda Unite. And this is people against the NDAA. Uh, this is kind of a cutting edge organization in terms of what it does and what it represents. It's really about uh, getting the tools to people in the local communities uh, to sort of take back, uh, I would say, uh, let's call it people power or real local democracy. Uh, his name is Jason uh, Casella. He's joining us right now. Jason, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm good. I'm good. And Jason, are you uh, are you in Idaho right now? I am, yeah. So you're in Idaho, and you know we we spoke earlier on the uh, on social media, and you know you told me you'd been up to the wildlife refuge. I believe it was last week or the week before, and uh, had some observations about it. I mean, bearing in mind the news which has come out this week, uh, you spoke to a number of people there, met with people, including Lavoy Finnegan, as well. And uh, you know, I I met him in passing. I don't believe we had time to talk when i did see him but uh you had a chance to meet and talk with him and uh i just wanted to firstly just share that with us because i think a lot of people uh would, would like to hear that um what your impressions of of lavoy finnegan are and we can get into talking about um the other aspects of of, of the uh, protest and the standoff after that. But just tell us a little bit about, firstly, tell us who, uh, what you're doing right now uh, and your background real quick again, and then tell us about your observations from uh, from the protest at Burns. Yeah, so what we do is work on a local level um, to basically ensure that the local representatives are acting within the confines of the Constitution, uh, which I know you know, back up our inherent unalienable rights. Um, so we're just making sure that the body that is elected that is closest to the people and easiest to rein in, so to speak, um, is done. So what we do is we pass a resolution locally called the Restoring Constitutional Governance Resolution, uh, which we we passed in in my hometown, and part of the reason why I I decided to go over to Ferguson or to uh, to the Bundy uh, situation in Burns is because the founder of, of Panda Dan Johnson went over to Ferguson, and what I noticed when you can look past the the propaganda and the division is. There, there are a lot of groups out there that are fighting the same battles and in different flavors. And when we can get past the propaganda and the and the division, uh, I think that we could we could all work together um, a lot a lot more seamlessly. And you know, w when you do work together, you have a much better chance. So, 
what I wanted to do was, you know, go go to Burns, see things for myself. I actually ended up going with a friend of mine who ended up staying, and he's still there. But I wanted to, you know, experience for myself, not not trust what I'm seeing and hearing on the media. And I, I did get a chance to meet Lavoie and uh, the leadership team over there. And my impression of Lavoie was he was very smart, uh, very peaceful, and he, he just seemed like a, a, a real solid, um, genuine guy, you know. So mm-hmm. that that those were my impressions of him. Most of what I've seen was was him talking online, but when I met him in person, you can kind of gauge the authenticity of a person when you when you're there. And and I got I got nothing weird or or anything uh, you know negative from my interactions with him at all. Yeah, I mean those guys. Uh, Lavoie is—he's a real cowboy, you know. And the people—if you're not from the rural areas and you're not from those communities, and you don't uh, mix and match with these types of people, then you know you won't really know what they're like. And they are uh, not the same type of people that you—if you're living in New York City or you know in an urban area. Um, these are people that live, work on the land. These are people from big families, uh, big extended families. These are people who are generally uh, uh, very spiritual as well. Uh, so these are, it, it's really hard for people like salon readers or people who read raw story to relate to people like that. And I think that's part of the big cultural disconnect in America. Uh, there is a huge cultural gap uh, between those people who live in uh, in this sort of urbanites if you will uh and those people who are out in the countryside so that's this is a huge obstacle to overcome in terms of understanding uh and i think we see this uh, manifested on twitter and social media this the the attacks after lafoy finnegan has been killed on just the insults um the the things said about ryan bundy as well uh and, and i can go on and on you know, it's to me looking at the culture wars in America. This really shocked me to look at the mob, the virtual mob that just formed like a tidal wave and just unleashed itself uh, in this social media, especially. So, but um, I don't know if you had seen any of that or you understand that dynamic at all. But to me, it's pretty shocking. Yeah, and I would encourage anybody who is is trying to learn more, or maybe visit a small town. If you know anybody that lives in a small town, try to get to know them a little bit more, and, and it might make a little bit more sense. Yeah, that's a good, definitely good advice. Um, so, yeah, so you had a chance to, to meet, talk with uh, Lavoy Finicum as well, and uh, by all accounts seemed like a really good man, uh, great man, in fact, uh, according to a lot of people I've spoke to. Um, and you also met with the Bundys? I met with Ryan Bundy. I also met with LaVoy's daughters that came to visit um, very briefly as well. Mm-hmm. But I got I got the same impression from Ryan Bundy as well. Um, just a very solid, you know, uh, he, it seemed like he had, you know, really, really good uh, ideas. Um, very peaceful, uh, of course, and trying to work within, uh, you know, the system and, and uh, try to make sure that the Constitution is followed in a peaceful way. So, Yeah, I, I didn't see the need for the way events ended up on Tuesday evening. I did not see that, that was necessary. 
I, I really didn't. I, and I, I want to get your thoughts on that because you were up there and you saw the atmosphere. You spoke to people. Um, I mean, we'll get to some of the uh, more nefarious aspects uh, of the dynamic in a minute. But just your basic first impressions as an observer, it wasn't, uh, was it a violent uh, encampment? Did you, uh, were they insurrectionist or did you, you know, how, how, how would you view that just as a casual observer? You know, what was the impression you got of how things were going up there? Well, you know, everybody was breaking bread together. They were singing together. They were, they were praying together. You know, they, they were just, you know, getting back down to the, the human levels and, and getting past, you know, the labels that, that are out there, you know, and it just seemed like a, a, a peaceful place. And, uh, yeah, so I, I didn't think it had to end the way it did. Unfortunately, it did. There's going to be a lot of people obviously arguing about what happened. Uh, you know, was he, was he, wasn't he, et cetera. And we'll, they'll take time for some of those questions to be answered. But, um, now the, the whole reason why this started, Jason, uh, was because of the Hammond family. And this case, uh, father and the son uh, were resentenced. Um, and sent down for another five years, I guess. And the father's 73 years old, so, you know, it could be some of the last years of his life. But, uh, for, allegedly for a controlled burn or, and a backfire that they set, uh, which went on to federal lands. This was all back about 15 years ago. It started now. That was the original case. So there's a number of key issues here, like jurisdiction, jury nullification, for instance, uh, and also, public lands uh, just as a general issue um and also i guess uh you know the, the 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 sort of feud that the bureau of land management has with so many small farmers around the united states but all of these issues have been absolutely pushed completely off of the uh conversation because of the more say i might call it flamboyant aspects that the media picks up on this event, and, and absolutely it's about guns and the militia uh, and all the sort of characters uh, who are running around up there. So and that's, to me, unfortunate, Jason, because this is such a key issue for so many uh, people and Americans, especially in the, in the Western states. I guess people in the East Coast don't really understand or care about the issue because there's, those states, uh, it's my understanding that they're on a, sort of a different footing, if you will, as states than the uh, 11 western states in terms of uh, how much land the federal government owns, says it owns, I guess, and controls uh, and jurisdiction and just the sheer size and scope of the federal government's uh, operations in the 11 western states. So this is not, no one's really talking about this right now. This is something that to me is really, that's, the, that's also a big tragedy uh, from the situation in Oregon. I want to get your comments on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there there are there are major issues with jurisdiction and and the over overreach and outside of the bounds that the uh, agencies that are unelected by the people are are basically assuming, uh, such as the Bureau of Land Management, who you know keep in mind the, their name Bureau of Land Management, not Bureau of Land Ownership, right? <laughs> yeah. So. 
I mean, that, that is something that, you know, you can keep in mind, but th- there are a lot of other issues that are happening, um, that, that more people can get around if, if we could get past, you know, the, the division that is being driven by the mainstream media. I know that there are a lot of issues right now, specifically in my, my home state of Idaho regarding mineral rights and, and things like that, which comes down to the same, the same core, uh, aspect that you don't have control over or any say so with your your property rights and and your basic human uh, rights that are protected by the Constitution. So th- there seems to be you know the division of you know the left versus the right. You know what's happening in Burns is is more directed towards the right, and then you can have mineral right uh, issues and um, you know gas and oil drilling. Uh, issues that are coming up that are more geared towards the left. But if you look at the core of the issues, it, it affects us all, whether, whether you hang a, a left or, or a right uh, symbol next to your name. And, and you have both sides that are either allowing it to happen or straight up voting for your rights to be taken away. And, and it's kind of like the, the quote, you know, if you have a boot to your forehead, does it, does it matter if it's a, a left or a right boot or is it still a boot? Yeah, exactly. And and also what you know in relation to what you said earlier about the work you're doing about uh you know the principle behind Panda and if you're a farmer in in a place like uh you know Burns Oregon or Harney County or whether you're down in Clark County in Nevada or you're somewhere else uh and and then the let's say the federal government rolls into town and uh sets members of the community off against each other, offers to buy somebody out. Somebody says no, someone says yes. Federal subsidies are offered out to some, but not others. Uh, there's people who are struggling to make a living. I think Lavoy Finnegan, uh, he, he had a lot of foster kids come through his ranch, and people would say the, the left-wing media shamelessly basically accused him of running a foster child scam. What they don't realize is when the Bureau of Land Management comes and says, you can't run uh, 500 head of cattle, you're going to have to run 120 head of cattle. Okay, and all of a sudden your ranching business, your farming business becomes unprofitable at that point. So people have to resort to basically subsidizing their ranching business either by doing what they call weekend warrior ranching, which is getting a job during the week, ranching on the weekends, or doing things like foster programs with the state. Now, I'll argue that 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 was probably the best foster experience any kid can have is to work on a farm with uh, Robert Lavoie Finnegan growing up and all the things that they had learned. And mind you, these are kids that have been discarded by their uh, families or mothers or some cases their parents are on social assistance, drug addicts, etc. So he's doing a public service and getting absolutely lambasted uh, by the mob uh, for this. But he's doing it to subsidize a failed ranching business that's failing because of restrictions placed upon him by the Bureau of Land Management, by the federal government. So it's, the, it's a feedback system that's undeniable here. And, uh, and wouldn't you rather, wouldn't this rather be an issue to, of land management with the state? Wouldn't that be better for Lavoy Finnegan, like what you're saying with Panda, getting closer to the source of power in terms of decision making, rather than almost like a foreign entity in Washington, D.C.? 
Absolutely. And you gotta, you gotta remember too, you know, if, if your backyard is dirty and, and has stuff all over it, how can you ask somebody that, you know, maybe lives next door to clean their backyard? You know, you have to, you have to make sure that your city council and county commission is, uh, is acting on behalf of the people and acting, uh, you know, with their restraints of the constitution before you can ask somebody in DC, for example, or even at your state, uh, you know, level representatives, you, you can't ask them to do things that you're not even ensuring is happening at your city council and county commission. And, and that goes to, you know, making sure you're attending the meetings because that's where all this stuff gets rolled out and that's where the jurisdiction lies and, and where you could actually have the most impact. Mm. And so has anybody from your, you know, from the, the groups and people that you've worked with or that you've trained and so forth um, through Panda and, and uh, your other work, have, have has anybody actually run for office or has anybody kind of got on the uh, county, run for county council or local council or anything like that? Well, we've had several, several city council members and a, and a few commissioners either get uh, not reelected or or uh, actually <laughs> decided not to run again as a as a result of of what our efforts have been uh, and these are people that have been you know reelected time and time again and and um, actually haven't had other people run against them so that that's where you can see some change and and I do know of some people who have been running and and have now run or are are willing to run if somebody doesn't run against some of these people that have just been in office for for uh you know years and years without any opposition mhm that's good well that's that's positive so you're having a little bit of an effect uh, impact there on the local political scene so shaking up any of those sort of uh, safe seats as they call them um so that's pretty positive so but um so you know what i want to talk also about the you know the nature of activism but um just to wrap up the uh a little bit well not wrap up but just also the the other issue um with regarding uh burns oregon that I'd like to share. I mean, we spoke before the break about the, uh, the, the LA magistrate, um, and this federal complaint, which was unsealed, uh, and whereby the, uh, the, the, the Bundys are being charged with, uh, evidence that was collected by, uh, one of the so-called, uh, members of the media there named Peter Santilli live streaming and has admitted that the FBI were very happy that they got all this, uh, footage. From his live stream, and uh, this 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 is leading us to uh, look at a lot of uh, people um, in in that scene up there. There's some absolutely incredible characters, and this could, sort of reminds me a little bit, Jason, of uh, the PatCon FBI's PatCon program, uh, which I believe was in the 80s and 90s. And if people aren't aware of what this is, this was like an undercover FBI program, uh, which they wanted to infiltrate all sort of militia movements, uh, especially, uh, during the nineties, this sort of was, got a lot of media coverage basically, but they're gathering intelligence and they were trying to infiltrate these various groups. This, this sort of hit its peak as it were on media attention during the Oklahoma city bombing or just after. Because uh, one of these groups uh, was one of the ones involving uh, Tim McVeigh, and uh, but it was interesting. The timing of it was interesting because uh, 
it couldn't have been worse. You know, these uh, networks targeted by the investigation were basically inflamed um, to violence by the Waco massacre. So this was a real, you know, it, it was a fire pit at the time. And, uh, but the Hotari militia in Michigan as well, this was something that was pretty high profile uh, in recent years. Uh, this was uh, a militia movement that was kind of infiltrated by the FBI. Um, and I can go on and on. You had Hal Turner as well, who was kind of an alternative media guy, very similar um, to Pete Santilli in terms of had his own Internet radio show, would say bombastic things on the air, call for people to be, you know, violence against, you know, federal officials and so forth. So, I mean, I think the PatCon program is still going myself jason that's my personal feeling here and i think it's probably i think it's a lot bigger and more complex than it was in the 1990s i don't know, have you have you had a chance to look at this story or research that that pat con program by the fbi because i think it's fascinating yeah um actually i had never heard about it until until we talked about it a little bit but it, it does seem Pretty pretty interesting, and you could you could find some articles on it if you were to to just do a quick search on it. But it is very interesting, especially you know knowing what we what we know now and seeing what we have seen transpire over in Burns. So it's something that you know everybody should should take a look at and keep in mind uh, as we are we are seeing more and more of these types of situations uh, occur. You know there there is. You know, what we saw over in Ferguson that happened a few months ago. You have the, the water issue that's happening in, uh, in Michigan, I believe, right now, where mm-hmm. similar situations are occurring. So we definitely want to make sure that we're, we're paying attention to, to things that have happened in the past because, you know, what we, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? So mm-hmm. the more information you can, you can get your hands on, the better. Well, regarding PACCON, the thing that, that struck me about this is because if I look at the charges uh, that they have against the Bundys, one of the main items there is uh, they, the federal government's basically claiming there's explosives uh, at the wildlife refuge, and they found explosives there, and they believe they had intel that they were planning to attack the town of Burns. I mean, hardly believable, right? But and you were there, so is that that's kind of an unbelievable scenario, right? Yeah, that that is that's pretty pretty out there as far it's, as as far as that goes. Yeah, it's it's kind of outrageous, and that's putting it lightly. So, but this is what's in this is the main bit. This is like the meat of the federal operation. So this gave the justification for the overwhelming use of force, etc. Now, it could easily have been planted the explosives that they say they have or they say they found could easily have been planted by uh, uh, somebody who was being handled by an informant or by an informant themselves. Now, I'm going to prove to you that this is possible. This is an article by the Huffington Post. This is from February 2014. This is an article by Ryan J. Riley. Okay, and the headline of this article, you can go and Google it. Georgia men used Facebook to plot anti-government militia uprising, prosecutors say. 
Three Georgia men were charged in a federal court this week uh, for plotting uh, to attack the government and designed to, to trigger martial law and to encourage other militias to join their violent uprising. Most of this was uh, bedroom fantasy stuff, but uh, indictments were made, uh, arrests were made, uh, and they basically uncovered this so-called plot. And what's interesting is basically there was an informant so on later on February the 15th, Cannon told another FBI informant the types of weapons that uh, the man charged allegedly wanted. The FBI gave the cooperating informant 12 non-working pipe bombs and two high-temperature thermite devices given to him by the FBI. Okay, so the three men uh, met with the cooperating confidential informant who handed over the explosives to the militia guys, to to the dupes, basically. So the three suspects were, were then arrested as the cooperating informant went to obtain another box of supplies. So he basically went away and said, oh, I've got to get another box out of the truck, and that's when the feds came in and arrested these fools. Okay, so this, this man allegedly encouraged members of his militia to review guerrilla warfare tactics, accumulate supplies, and prepare their families. And uh, he told them that the guerrilla warfare primary targets included TSA, DHS, uh, non-emergency FEMA, and roadblocks, etc. So one of the FBI's uh, cooperating sources who had no prior convictions or felony charges, but who was paid, who was paid by the FBI, was supposed to meet one of the arrestees in Memphis on February 5th. But that meeting was scrapped. Instead, the FBI informant talked to him over the phone and secured chat on a website. There, the person using the, the nickname, this is the cooperating confidential informant working for the FBI, who went by the nickname The Chief, said the group, would then try to restrain uh, the violence towards the people instead, would target infrastructure instead. So basically this person named, whose nickname was the chief was working for the FBI, working all these militia guys to do things and to basically take explosives which the FBI provided to them and they arrested them all. This is almost could be the identical situation you have up at the Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. Okay. So all we need is basically to find out what happened and when, which we hopefully will find out when this trial uh, unfolds. So I think I think it's amazing, Jason, because you're right. History does repeat itself. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's eerily similar to stories that we've seen, you know, come out more and more like, you know, Fast and Furious, like, you know, the stories that you've covered quite a bit where, funding and arms have gotten to, you know, the extremists in in mid- the Middle East, like groups that are quote, called, quote, ISIS. And if you look at where they're getting their funding and, and arms and, and things like that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, it, it does sound eerily uh, similar to this. And, and knowing what I know uh, that has occurred under the uh, Patriot Act and National Defense Authorization Act, declaring the entire world to be a battlefield, you know, who, who, who were to say whether things could happen there that couldn't happen here. And it would actually be quite the opposite. What you allowed to happen, uh, you know, in other places you allowed to happen here. And like Martin Luther King said, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
so I think when, when, when the federal government's involved or the CIA or whoever it is anywhere in the world or in the United States, you know, they, here you have the sort of the honeypot effect where they, certain people will act, uh, quite extreme in their public persona in order to attract what they call the worst of the worst. Okay. And, uh, by doing that, they'll attract all the crazies and then the feds can keep an eye and keep tabs on them and maybe even manipulate them to do little tasks and things like that, which is what this case in, uh, with the Georgia men that I've just mentioned, which is exactly what the, the chief did, whoever the chief is. And, uh, so that's exactly what happened. But what's interesting here is it creates a lightning rod. So you mentioned ISIS before. So Al-Qaeda and ISIS, what they are is like a lightning rod for uh, public opinion as well. And, and so it's like you create an extremist faction, let's say, of uh, Islam, for instance, and you militarize that, and then you give it political identity as well. And then it, you create this kind of offshoot, this kind of an artificial offshoot. And I think I've, I think we're seeing the same thing uh, with with some of the militia movements in the United States. They've created lightning rods, and I believe that based on the records that I have, all these various case studies, uh, including this, the the study from Alaska with that uh, militia bust as well, Hutari, PatCon, and the Georgia boys, uh, and then possibly in Oregon, um, this lightning rod's created. And and look what it's done politically in the United States. It's it's set people against people. It's set right against left. It's set urban people against country people. It's incredible. I, I've never seen such political division uh, in my life in the United States. And to me, it's kind of frightening. And I think the country's in a very different place than it was 30 years ago. I don't know... Uh, what your observations are on that, but that's something that I'm kind of concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I I like to pose the question, you know, what's going on in Burns and and on the west western part of the United States? What what's different between that and what's going on, uh, you know, in these situations like Ferguson and and uh, areas that you know are are more quote supported by the by the left. You know, uh, there, there really isn't much of a difference when you, when you look at, you know, what's being done and what people are standing up for. They're standing up for their their inherent rights, their human rights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we just have to get past the labels and, and we have to see see past that and remember that we're all human beings and and unite together, uh, you know, and, and that, that would be the, the best way to go about it on a, on a local level for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's let's look at that too. You know, I'm looking at the Solutions Institute, and I know you're doing a lot of work um, on that front, and also the uh, the activist uh, conferences as well. And so, what you're what you're trying to do here is you're really trying to just a you've got some tools you've created, right, uh, that are going to allow people that can just pick up these tools and run with them. Is that kind of the the the, the idea behind it? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, kind of what happened around the same time that Luke Radowski of We Are Change and Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers received child pornography. So did Dan Johnson, the, the founder of Panda. So at that time, we, we uh, basically decentralized, made this, this packet of material and, and basically 
you know, made it available for anybody to, to be able to download so that, you know, there isn't one, one person that, you know, could be quote taken out that would, you know, stop the movement. And, and we basically created these tools that anybody can, can download and, and use and, and gave, gave the power back to the people to, to stand up. So, so for those who aren't familiar, um, there was some, somebody planted, uh, a load of illicit images on a bunch of people's, uh, computers who were kind of in the, uh, uh, liberty movement, I suppose you could call it. And, uh, so some people aren't aware that that happened. That what, what year was that when that happened? Uh, I'd have to look exactly, like, but I want to say it was, was around tw- 2014, maybe. Yeah, 20, 2014 or 2013. Um, I remember seeing that story actually. But, um, and so that kind of prompted you to, to move things to another level, didn't it? Yeah, and, and it's been, it's been good, you know, and, and that's also, you know, something that we noticed because we started going out after the representatives that were in DC, which, you know, fall on deaf ears. If you, if you ever called your senator or congressman that, that are in DC, the most you can expect is a form letter written by a staffer. And then we noticed pretty similar, similarly happening at the, at the state level. So by far, the best way to go is with the people that are closest to you, the people you see at your restaurants, the people you see at, at your grocery stores, your city council and county commission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really, really engaging locally. And uh, I, I think this is something that uh, people got away from uh, during the 90s. Um, so, and I think the, the hype with global, globalization, I think the internet had something to do with that. But I think there's, I, I don't know if you agree with me, Jason, or not, but things are coming, uh, they're coming back around. The cycle's coming back around. Uh, so as everyone was spread out uh, virtually, um, th- there is uh, a resurgence in interest in local uh, government, local issues, uh, local communities coming together, helping each other. Is this something that you're seeing in, in recent years? Because I'm seeing it in some places. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's where the people's true power lies. And, and it kind of comes down, you know, what I talked about before. If, if your backyard is dirty, you know, that's your, that's your city council. If, if they're the ones... That are, that are not acting within within the Constitution, how can you expect or, or demand that your state or your or your federal representatives are? And you know you, 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 that's hypocritical, right? You, you, if you have control over your city council and county commissioner but aren't doing anything about it, not attending the meetings, not ensuring you have the right people in there, good luck trying to do it. You know, at the federal level, or even trying to elect a president that is supposedly going to do that. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. And, and what, what, what's been some of your biggest successes so far in terms of like what you've been able to, to pass through, um, what you've been able to get your, your local governments to recognize um, and sort of hopefully change the course of the, the, the paradigm a little bit? Yeah, so since we passed the Restoring Constitutional Governance Resolution, we have been able to unite the left and the right a, a lot more. And, and now you have the the quote Tea Party type, uh, you know, members working with more of the quote, um, you know, environmentalist type uh, groups, at least what, you know, would be referred to uh, before. Now working together as, as human beings, fighting and, and ensuring that their, their God given inherent rights are protected that are backed by the Constitution. So mm-hmm. people that would normally not be caught dead in the same room together are now 
you know, allies and working together. And there, there is something going on uh, regarding property rights and, and things like that in Idaho that these groups are now working together on. And, and I, I think that once they saw that their representatives on both the left and the right would, would vote to, you know, basically take away their rights in, in several different areas, uh, they, they had a, a light bulb kind of uh, pop on, you know. And then we, we were also able to ensure that funding from plans regarding UN Agenda 21 were not funded at our local city council as well. Oh, so you can look at you can look at a lot of different issues that are happening at the federal level and the global level that are all being implemented at your city and county. And, and without your city and county doing it, they wouldn't be able, they wouldn't have the resources, the time, the money, the energy uh, to be able to implement these in every city and county across the country, if you think about it. So mm-hmm. if you can if you can make sure that that is taken care of locally, you know, a lot of those issues that, that you're worried about, you know, will cease to exist. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you've heard of Agenda, Agenda 30, which they just launched um, before Christmas. This is sort of a... Uh, a kind of adjunct to Agenda 21. I don't know if you followed that or not, but are, are, do they have funded mandates or anything like that for, for that program in local governments and things? Well, what I noticed is they don't, they don't always spell out the, the actual name, you know, as, as uh, you know, Agenda 21 or Agenda 30, whatever they want to name it. Uh, it, it would go more towards, like, sustainable development. There, there's uh-huh. some keywords that you can look at you know, uh, from doing just a, a quick little, res- uh, you know, internet search, and, and you can look for that on your uh, city council uh, agenda every every other week or however your city does it. And I have my clerk send me the uh, agenda every every time they have a meeting, and I, and I scan it, I look at it, mm-hmm. and then I attend and make sure that, you know, these things aren't, aren't going to be applied. Mm-hmm. And, and all these things cost money, don't they? They do, yeah, and and you got to look at you know not just the the big names that you see, you know, you got to look at the the keywords that that you can find with with just a little bit of research and and kind of read between the lines, go there, ask questions, you know, bring bring people with you. Mm-hmm. Well, I just spoke to I don't know if you're familiar with uh, or you know what your feelings are on the fracking the fracking issue, but um, you know um, when I was in the UK. Uh, last year and and the years before, I, that was that was a huge movement that basically grew up from the grassroots. Uh, they were basically dropping drill bits in, in like small towns, right in town, you know, and plans, lots of concessions, thousands and thousands of wells to be drilled in towns. And uh, one of the sort of leaders, the advocates against uh, uh, hydraulic fracturing in, in communities was uh, a man named Ian R. Crane in the UK. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but um, I just spoke to him this morning and I was talking to him about what we're, what we're going to be talking about on this show. And he had a few words of advice because basically they managed to, to, to simultaneously start 500 unconnected, decentralized, local anti-fracking groups in the UK, in the UK and they've been very very successful in kind of repelling these mega corporations uh who are basically in collusion with the government uh to drop these drill bits down inside small towns uh there's a lot of risks to the water supply of course and a number of other things but but what I thought was interesting Jason was 
his take on how they managed to basically do away with any hierarchical structure. And because he believed that the establishment is designed to infiltrate only, only hierarchical um, organizations. And he said they can't deal with decentralized organizations. So I'm going to roll a, a, a clip. I've got two clips here, but roll Ian Crane, uh, audio clip one. Listen to this, Jason, and we'll talk about it after after the clip. Go ahead and roll that, Hesher. Well, I'm just actually driving back right now from um, an event in Birmingham because today we had some 40-plus events around the country to raise awareness of the, um, the fracking agenda in the UK. And one of the points that uh, I was discussing was the importance of having no hierarchical structure. The, the moment that any anti-establishment organization gets organized to the point where there is a formal structure, it will be infiltrated in a heartbeat. You know, the establishment is very, very good at, uh, at doing that. It's been doing it for a long time. So the unique element of the UK anti-fracking community is that there is no formal structure. There is no leadership. No uh, whatsoever. It is a loose network of over 500 groups around the country, um, all operating totally autonomously, independently, uh, but of course, uh, like I said, loosely networked through social media. So, you know, people have access to what everybody else is doing, but um, nobody knows what everybody else is, uh, is doing at the same time. So, um, you know, this is working to our enormous advantage. And, and so my, my counsel to um, activists is to step away from, you know, the uh, intuitive process that, you know, you've got to have everything organized through a central hub. No, it's got to be totally asynchronous. Um, you know, you've got to create a hydra that's got uh, as many independent, autonomous heads as you can possibly muster. I mean, in my, in my ideal situation, every community in the UK has an anti-fracking group, and even um, some of the larger communities have multi-anti-fracking groups, uh, and they, they're all doing their own thing, but then when the crunch comes, you know, when they need to really get their act together to challenge planning applications or uh, even physically get in the way of the, uh, the vehicles when they're trying to establish the well site, then obviously they, uh, they, they come together at that juncture. Yeah, so that was that was Ian R. Crane. Uh, that was actually a conversation right before the show. We had I was on the phone with him, but um, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Um, that they've just somehow it's almost if by magic they've been able to to grow this thing on the grassroots uh, in the UK with absolutely. But but they had a common. There's some common principles behind all these groups. Obviously, they, they share uh, they share an objective, right? But they're that they're just everywhere. It's incredible. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, you know, when you look at the, the situation with fracking with a little bit of research, what they're doing is they are forcing people, whether they want to or not, to allow a company, and, and many times it's, it's one not even from your area, to force you to 
allow a, a drill to be done on your property, whether whether you want to or not, and the rights have been taken away either by the federal government or the state government. And when you when you look at what's being done on the fracking issue, and then if you look at what's being done, you know, with situations like the Bundy Ranch and, and what's happening in Burns, the core issue is the same. It's it's property rights. It's your it's your human basic fundamental rights to to life, liberty, property, the, the pursuit of happiness. So if you can get past the labels, they're they're basically fighting the same thing with a little different flavor. And what he was saying about decentralization uh, is is exactly you know why why we've been so successful. If you you know it's kind of like what what's happened with the mainstream media as of nineteen eighty three. You had what six corporations owning ninety percent of media. Mm-hmm. When when you can make a couple calls and and have your agenda or your you know directive followed, is that easier to make a, a few calls rather than making thousands or or hundreds of thousands of calls? Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a centralization and an easier way to control. So the more decentralized you can be, the more uh, groups you have that are that are standing you know and operating independently the better because, you know, it comes down also to the resources, you know, on a, on a local level, you, you can have a lot more control than you can uh, as a people than what the federal government can do uh, from D.C. You know, they, they need the cooperation of local people to be able to do what they want. And mm-hmm. part of why, you know, I looked at, you know, the issue of, of uh, the National Defense Authorization Act as a big deal for me, because I know that there are a lot of issues out there, and at, at some point, you know, it's all going to come back to, you know, these these terms like terrorist and and you know things like that. Uh, if you're going against the grain and going against what you know the the main line is, uh, that's that's where you get that label. And and you could be standing up for fracking, or you could be standing up for grazing rights. At the end of the day, it's it's the same difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, good. Well put, well put. And, and on the issue of decentralization, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, We Are Change was uh, so successful, is that it's, it's completely decentralized. All the little chapters are basically autonomous. There's no sort of command structure there, and they just pop up all over the place, and they, they're based on some common principles, uh, you know, doorstepping people with cameras and, you know, getting in the face of the, uh, the power structure, as it were. But the, there are some common sort of, you know, principles there that they all kind of do, but, um, but it's decentralized. It's completely decentralized, and I think that's one of its big strengths, actually. Yeah, it's kind of like the the game that you played when you were a kid, right? Whack-a-mole. You know, you, you can hit one, but then five others are going to pop up somewhere else, and, and that's the, the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than taking out the, the head of the snake, and, and then the whole the body is left, uh, you know, done. If you have it, if you have multiple things happening at the same time, they can they can chop off one head, but there's going to be ten others that pop up. And, inevit- and inevitably, uh, whenever you get these uh you know groups together be it activists or people in what used to be called the truth movement i guess and and anything there's always someone who gets up and said we all need to get together we need somebody 
we need a leader. We all need to rally behind, uh, you know, whether Alex Jones or I don't know, Jesse Ventura or something like that. And we need to unify everything. And, um, I was talking about that with Ian Crane as well. And there's one other little adjunct to that clip. Go ahead and roll the Ian Crane uh, audio clip too. He's talking about someone wanting to unify all the fracking groups, and this was his answer. Go ahead and roll that, Ian, Ian Crane too. Who was doing his level best to argue for a national uh, anti-fracking organization, and I mean, it eventually got to the point where I said, "Look, you know, we are as successful as we are." Because we don't have a national hierarchy. And I said, look, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm going to make the statement that you know, those of us that have been doing this now are, are very, very suspicious about those who promote the idea of a single hierarchical structure. Because we know very well that the establishment would love to have that. And we know very well that obviously we're causing the problems by not having it. So, so this yeah, person so wanted to create um, potentially an infiltrator, wanted to to sort of backdoor create or a drive or some call for a national unified organization. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, I'm able to uh, sort of counter counter that. And I make the observation. I said, you know, everything that we're doing is counterintuitive. You know, uh, because everyone's been programmed to think that you've got to have a hierarchical NGO like, you know, Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or, and not like Lock the Gate in Australia, that you've got to have this national structure. But I said, you know, the establishment knows how to deal with that. They're, you know, those, those NGOs, they're an irritation, but they're never actually going to stop anything from actually occurring. They're just an irritation. I said, you know, what we've done is we've, we've gone to a whole new level. So, you know, friends of the Earth and are very supportive of what we do, but they're not driving it. They're not leading it. Mm. Wow, that's interesting. Very interesting, isn't it? It's Jason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that just goes along, you know, with, with what we've been talking about. But you, you definitely need to have it be a decentralized, uh, you know, effort. And, and it's a lot harder to, you know, like, like I just said, you know, if, you, if you're going to make a couple calls, is it easier to, to do that rather than a couple thousand? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and as things wrap up in, uh, well, so for now anyway, in Oregon, I think that the legal drama is just going to be beginning. But, you know, just standing back, you know, and you know a lot of people in in the in these communities and uh, a lot of the people involved in the in that protest and where do you think things are heading right now in terms of um, you know that movement that the Bundys were rep- that representing there um, do you think what what do you think in the near term is it is it going to uh, is it fractured do, is they going to have to pick up the pieces is there divisions that have occurred or do you think it's going to galvanize the movement what are your thoughts on that. I think it it kind of started off a little galvanized, and and whether you you know agree with with how it was handled, you know, with with them going into the the refuge or not, um, I think that with what happened to Lavoie has has really been um, sort of uniting people, and I I know that they're working on a lot of initiatives on the local level through redress of grievances, and with their city council and county commission, so. You know, they need to work on cleaning up their their local 
representation, making sure that they are acting within uh, the jurisdiction and, and the, the confines of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And as long as they can do that, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be in a lot better shape. It, the whole reason why this uh, type of thing is going on there is because the, the city council and county commission either is not acting or uh, willingly is complicit in allowing that land to be managed by a foreign entity. Uh, in this case, it's an unelected uh, Bureau of Land Management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also putting a lot of uh, family farms uh, out of business over the over the last few decades and really changing, transforming the culture and really damaging the local economy as well. Uh, those economies aren't s- sustainable without a healthy agricultural sector. And this is where the BLM rubs right up against, um, you know, the, the, the smallholder, the, sm- the small agriculture operator, um, the family business. They, they really, this is where the rubber meets the road and this is the problem. So, um, it, and you just look at the businesses up there. Uh, they're talking about how, you know, God, things used to be a lot better. Uh, it's really tough now. And the reason is, is because there's just not a healthy agricultural sector anymore. And one of the reasons is, is that's because of the federal government, because of the activities of the BLM. So from an economic point of view, there's a huge argument to be made, um, you know, in, for this. But I think, I think in the bigger picture, Jason, uh, what we're seeing is it's a manifestation of globalization. Uh, and like you said, um, there's aspects of Agenda 21 uh, that that go along with that brand of globalization. So this, this is where we're at right now in the United States. This is where the real battleground is. Yeah, and the, and the forefront of that battleground is, uh, is right in your local city council and county commission. That's where you could, you know, start to learn more and start to find out what's really happening at the global level um, is right in your own backyard. Mm-hmm. And, and give us, give us your, uh, before we go, Jason, you know, tell people if they want to get involved, if they want information, if they want to understand and maybe put into practice some of the things that you're talking about here today, uh, where would they go? Where can they find that information? Yeah. So if, if you're a group that is looking to get some assistance. Um, Solutions Institute provides um, assistance and, and um, consultation for groups that are standing up for things like inherent rights as long as you're not requesting the uh, federal government to have more power uh, at the barrel of a gun, essentially. Um, that is a group that you could you can call upon for assistance, and that would be at solutions-institute.org. And then if you are interested in making sure that the laws of war and indefinite detention provisions included in a, a totally unrelated bill that simply funds our military, the National Defense Authorization Act, you can uh, download the packet at pandaunite.org slash takeback. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got I've got links to both of those websites uh, on our show page right now, right next to Jason's name in the show description. You'll see links to Solutions Institute and also Panda Unite. So you do want to go check that out. This is a really good opportunity if you're out there listening to 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 really. These are the tools that can get you active right away. And you know, Jason, the things that Jason's uh, 
describing here and the principles behind them, I think a lot of people have these in common out there. So I want you to encourage people to go and check that out, especially if you're in a rural small town or, or, or a rural area as well, because there's generally a lot more at stake for the community than if you're in a big city. So uh, do check that out. But Jason, thank you very much for your time uh, and for joining us today on the Sunday Wire. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick, and thanks for all your hard work. No, I appreciate appreciate it. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Casella. You can find out more about him and his work there at the show page. Just click through the links. We're going to take a short commercial break, and we're going to be joined uh, by the live link to the United Kingdom from our next guest. This should be an in- interesting conversation with Kim Upton. We'll be right back after these messages. I'm Patrick Henningsen. Stay right there. I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are tuned into AlternateCurrentRadio.com. That's 